0: Welcome to Engelberg Center Live, a collection of audio from events held by the Engelberg Center on Innovation, Law and Policy at NYU Law. This episode is the Can AI Propel Cultural Heritage Institutions Through Their Digital Transformation panel from the Generative AI and the Creativity Cycle Symposium hosted by Creative Commons at the Engelberg Center. It was recorded on September 13th, 2023. This symposium is part of Creative Commons' broader consultation with the cultural heritage, creative, and tech communities to support sharing knowledge and culture thoughtfully and in the public interest in the age of generative AI. You can find the video recordings for all panels on Creative Commons' YouTube channel, licensed via CC BY.
1: Good morning. Um, glad to be here, so I'm going to introduce our panel. We only have three of the four up here, but I think that's fine. Um, so, I'm Mike Kamesis, I work for Connecticut Humanities, which is the Humanities Council for the state of Connecticut, um, working on digital infrastructure projects along with um, consulting with cultural heritage institutions about their digital collections. So, I'm really um, honored to moderate this panel, um, and up here with me um, is Garvita Kapoor from the New York Public Library. Uh, she's the senior director of digital technology at the library and lead the soft, software development, QA, and project management of all digital projects and services. Um, I'm also happy to introduce Abby, Porter, Abby Potter, pardon me, uh, for the Library of Congress. She's a senior innovation specialist and founding member of LC Labs, a digital innovation team in the office of the chief information officer. Um, and right next to me is Amanda Figueroa from CREA. Uh, Curationist, uh, she is the platform director at Curationist, uh, Curationist, where she brings 12 years of experience in arts and culture, community engagement, and ethically s- sustainable strategy to the field of open access. Um, so I'm not sure if we want to, you know, it says here on the program that everyone has two to three minutes to, to talk about themselves, so um, maybe I'll, we'll just put on. that
2: uh, sure, I'd love to talk about myself um, <laughs> to a captive audience. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Thank you so much to Creative Commons for organizing and keeping us all on schedule. That's very easy to do at the beginning of the day. I know it will get harder. Um, I'm here today with a project called Curationist, um, which every time I talk about it, I always say has become my dream job. Um, I'll just talk briefly about what it is we do, and then identify a couple ways that, that we're beginning to think about AI for ourselves, but for sort of the ecosystem of open access cultural heritage broadly. Um, Curationist is at heart a search aggregator. Um, a few years ago, we set a dev team with the task of pulling together um, all of the open access APIs from large museum institutions around the world, with the idea that Currently, uh, all of the digitized collections in places like the Met or the Reykjavik Museum are siloed to that organization. If you want to find something, you have to search the Reykjavik Museum, and then you have to search at the British Museum, and then you have to search at the Metropolitan Museum, et cetera, et cetera. Our dev team are superstars, it must be said, because they were able to do this. We have a platform now at curationist.org where you can go, type in your search terms, and be delivered digitized, open access art images um, around those search results from 14 of our institutional partners, which have sourced us with 4.4 million art records in our database. Um, This is incredible. (laughs) It feels crazy that I get to say that it works. But it does work, um, and even even more um, even more special was in the pursuit of making this work. We realized we actually have an opportunity not simply to normalize metadata, um, to make all of these 14 institutional partner systems talk to each other and talk to us. Uh, we actually have an opportunity to contribute metadata um, and to do research on individual works, individual creators, or sets of works um, to augment these digital metadata records, um, and in the pursuit of doing that, make them more findable and therefore more accessible. Um, I'm happy to share some of the work that our amazing metadata and digital archivists have done on individual works, collections of works. Um, I will also say we also run programs for fellows and for art writers, art critics more broadly, to come in, share their subject matter expertise, and continue doing that work. It's incredible. It's important. It is deeply vital decolonial work that intervenes um, on issues of knowledge parity. Um, And when we're at our best, um, gets to elevate indigenous knowledge to a position of parity with the institutions that hold indigenous objects, um, uh, provenance under question. That being said, um, we have 4.4 million object records in our database. That's an insane number. Um, Most, if not all, of those records have more than one image attached to them. So it's truly an incredible amount of content that there is no way. We could have all the digital archivists in the world, and we still would not be able to do the vital work on every single individual record. I know this because these works are held in places like the Smithsonian, and they don't even have the resources to do all of that individual work. Um, so we're at a place now where you know our platform has launched. We're, we're very excited about it. We want to continue supporting open access, digitization, and licensing for even smaller museums who don't have the same resources to create an API, manage their own web hosting, have the staff capacity to consider this, let alone launch it. Um, But something that's increasingly on our mind is how could we use artificial intelligence to help speed up this process of of metadata review. Um, We're considering a couple things. Um, First and foremost is natural language search, um, which would help us build links between metadata terms that are related but not necessarily overlapping. Um, The example I gave, to some of you yesterday was, um, if you come and you type into curationist um, indigenous cultural heritage from Canada, um, you'll get things that are tagged indigenous, culture, heritage, Canada. Um, But what you really should be receiving are things that are simply tagged anyway, um, but perhaps don't have all those other words. Um, So developing natural language that can understand the linkage between these terms and, and deliver results that people are seeking, even if they don't have the right terms in the search box. Um, of course, that means that we also have to be very considerate of some things that, that Bridget mentioned earlier as major major sticking points, which are issues of certainly um, bad actors, abuse, racial bias, um, colonialist bias, white supremacy more broadly that infiltrate AI systems. Um, but even setting that aside, it's also an issue of how quickly cultural heritage terms shift, change, and are uncovered. Um, so the question for us has become, how do we build into whatever system for natural language processing that we implement a review process where our metadata and digital archivist experts can continue to make sure that we're using the most accurate, the most relevant, and the most culturally sensitive terms? Um, and that, that, of course, led me very quickly to the question of, like, well, is that actually improving our process or is that just changing the type of work that we ask those teams to do is it is it relieving their labor in a, in a joyful thoughtful um, utopian way or is it just asking them to learn a different task I'm not sure yet but I hope to find out <laughs> so that's that's the perspective that I'm bringing here today um, these are these are topics that we consider deeply at curationist um, both in a technological sense and in a um, and from a perspective of prioritizing indigenous data sovereignty. So really, really excited to be here and to talk to you more. Hi. I'm Gabrielle. I'm the senior director of digital
3: technology at the New York Public Library. I've been four years. It's sort of hard to introduce New York Public Library. It's, it's a, it's uh, the mission of the library is to inspire lifelong learning, uh, advanced knowledge and advanced communities. Um, there is a commitment, commitment to strengthening communities, like humans are at the center of libraries, um, for which we rely on our staff, our collections, our physical and our digital spaces. In terms of digital at the library, it's a very new department. It's been around for about seven years. Um, in digital, we kind of have our website, uh, which is nipl.org. Uh, we also do a uh, lot of preservation work. Uh, we have lots of uh, digital objects, which we are serving. We have tons and tons of uh, hard drives, petabytes of data sitting in hard drives that we have, you know, the challenges to uh, preserve them and make them accessible. Uh, that's definitely been challenging, given the amount of uh, metadata data you to need to tag them and make them accessible. Um, being a library, we have a catalog and tons and tons of records there. We are a research and a branch library, so um, we have a catalog for our branches and a catalog research catalog has millions of records in there. And uh, last but not least, we also have. a uh, providing digital books to our apps that we have now If you have a right with us, you can uh, log into the app, read books uh, check out audiobooks. We also have a platform called Open e-books. Um, it provides free uh, books to students in Title I schools. So any child part of uh, Title I school can log in with their school login first or clever, and get access to a library of books uh, and read them at whatever reading level that they are comfortable with. And there is a lot we do. There are a lot of questions we are sort of dealing with, especially when it comes to AI. I think mean, one of the biggest one is, uh, where do people fit in with AI? And the way a lot of leaders are looking at AI today is to, find ways of eliminating humans and using AI instead, and uh, we want we want AI to complement our staff and help them rather than replace them. That's, that's a big question because, like I said, libraries, it's all about human, it's all about human connection, it's about community, so that's the most important thing. And uh, I think we make all of our diverse collections available to all our patrons and do the best that we can and, you know, bring AI in the mix to to
4: serve them better. Thanks. Um, I'm Abby Potter. I'm uh, at the Library of Congress. Um, The Library of Congress is a a big, giant place. It uh, has, it includes the uh, Copyright Office, um, the Congressional Research Service, the Law Library, National Library for the Blind and Print Disabled, um, and I think, that's it, and then the library part of the library, which is like nine different libraries inside that library, and archives and special collections. So there's it's everything. Um, and uh, I work in the OCIO office, office of the chief information officer. So we serve all of those units, and um, in a labs in a, in, a, in a labs environment. So he that this is where we experiment um, with different. Um, new technologies that are coming, that are around, um, to see how they could help us fulfill our mission and and serve our users, which are very um, diverse. Our recent, um, our uh, new librarian she's not that new anymore, but um, our librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden, um, she, her new vision for the library is to connect to all Americans. So that is, um, uh, and we don't circulate our collection. It's all, sort of, you have to come to the library. So digital is really the way that we're looking to do that. Um, the uh, and we came by AI. We've been exploring AI and looking at it for um, since 2018, and we came by it very sort of practically and honestly, kind of before this big hype. But you know, many of you know AI has been around a long time, or that term has been around for a long time. Um, but we, you know, what we were first doing was looking at computational access to collections. So we put a lot of effort into digitizing our collections. Um, mostly public domain materials, putting them online, but, they're, um, but they're, we don't have the you know, sort of item level metadata or paragraph level metadata that helps people find what they're looking for. So we were investigating ways um, to sort of how can we bring, get more use out of these digital collections, make them more valuable to our users. And, um, and then you know, AI became uh, like, oh, this could solve our problem. This is really exciting, great. Um, so we started looking at it. And, um, and unfortunately, I it didn't really work the way that we needed it to work, and there were lots of different reasons why. Um, our, you know, our, a lot of our content is historic, it's noisy, it's messy, it's not structured, it's described at different levels, it's just a very complex um, uh, set of data, and most AI models are trained on contemporary data, are, con- are con- trained on Especially research is well formed, well known data, and this is what we don't know about our data. We don't know how it's formed, we don't know what's in it generally. So um, that uh, became a mismatch. So we, um, but we sort of think about it in terms of, you know, AI is the next big technical sort of revolution or sort of wave that's crashing down on us, but we as librarians, An archivist know we this has happened to us before with digitization with things going online we know what to do here and um, and that basically is to sort of uh, sort of work on things to get and sort of share share results of what we're doing and um, come up with uh, sort of quality standards for our sort of specific formats for our specific use cases and so um, that's what we're trying to build now this framework that really starts to consider, that considers the people, like other, folks on this panel um, talked about the, the people, um, the, the data that we have, and then all the models that we're using to sort of understand uh, and try to understand what works um, and what we could, you know, use together for benefit, for the benefit of our, of our users. Um, now stop there, and then we can go more.
1: Great, thank you. Yeah. Um, in listening to some of the things that you've all mentioned about um, some of the things you're doing with AI or thinking about um, really brings to my mind that you know how can this help institutions fulfill their mission, right? We're talking about cultural heritage institutions. We're talking about libraries, um, from Library of Congress to NYPL down to the local historical society or the local art museum or the community groups that you know I've worked with and we probably all worked with in our careers. How? What's the elevator pitch? I guess how you know if someone comes to you and say, how, how would How would this help me? How would this help my historical study? How would this help my museum fulfill my mission? What should, what would you be telling people? Mm -hmm. I get this question all the time, and I'm Mm -hmm. I'm going to a conference to find this out. (laughs) Um, So, you know, how does this? I mean, we all see it, right? Like we all can understand this Mm -hmm. is powerful and this could work. But how do Mm -hmm. we, how do we articulate that? I guess is the question I have.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh,
4: The so. I think first, being really clear on what your values and principles are as you know as a mission and or even as a department, you know what the what the clear goal and what the problem statement is starting there, um, because that will help inform how you make decisions along the way. Um, so getting very clear on you know what problem are you trying to solve? You're not just trying to use this new toy, you're actually using it to solve a problem. what is that problem? Um, and really dig into you know who are Who are the people involved? So, who are the stakeholders? Who are the people who are, um, you know, making decisions? Um, Who are the people who will be using the system or tool? The staff, the sort of, the people, um, the decision makers, the managers. Who are who is depicted in this data? Are they? You know, how can we bring out their voices? Who is going to be? Often with AI, there's. if you're going to train data, there who are the who's been labeling the data? Who, who knows? Um, you know, is that information clear? What was that incentive structure for for those for that labeling of data? Um, and then you know, as you sort of looked at your um, you know sort of why you're doing it, what you, you know um, who's involved in it, and sort and then you, there's this you know you can. What what I try to get down to is sort of making it very very boring. So you have this very big exciting idea, but try to make it very very boring and do like risk benefit analysis on each little single part of it, and um, and um, understand that it. I mean, what we've done, it's not always been um, the first try where you get the results that you want. Um, But I think having the stakeholders in mind, and then what we've tried to do is. For specific tasks um, uh, like for example we have an experiment where we're trying to make uh, mark records which are cat- library catalog records from um, ebooks so can we use AI to do this this is something we were like this should be easy and for some fields it is easy for other fields it's not like we're getting um, you know like 98% accuracy for like ISBN number and LCCN numbers but only 25% of it 25% of the subject terms are matching what catalogers are doing, so um, that and and sort of overall we're getting about 75% matching what catalogers do. So that's probably not good enough. So that's what that's why we're trying to think through like what the standards are. Can we agree on these standards? Um, and um, and keeping in mind who the people are. So like for this cataloging. Um, Experiment where the the goal is the design the sort of design principles we set out is to help catalogers. It's not to replace catalogers. It's to help them, and um, which we brought up before. So um, the, I think yeah, just the, the the principles, the the stakeholders, and sort of. Um, uh, uh, sort of getting a notion of what quality could look like. if you have like an existing quality standard that you could go to or do you need to sort of develop a new one and how would you do that?
3: That's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> uh, thank you, Abby. Uh, yeah. So from, I mean, we're asking the same questions ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what is the right thing for us to do that sort of drives our mission mm-hmm. value COVID, if, like, in terms of using AI? Um, there plenty of things we could do. We could um, use it for staff or use it for patrons in terms of staff. We could use it for quality assurance in uh, software engineering. We could use it for, um, you know, helping procurement with their contracts. We could use it for um, just improving productivity in general uh, by also looking at patrons, uh, you know, how patrons use the website and see the gaps and provide better, um, Support to our patrons and better services to our patrons by understanding their needs. And in, in a sort of like a public facing, <laughs> um, it seems a little risky right now. It feels a little bit safer to do that with staff right now because we have a controlled mm-hmm. group of captive audience who we can work with, find you, and learn and improve. Uh, public facing seems a little bit more risky right now, but there's an opportunity here to use. AI for accessibility, providing multilingual support, Mm -hmm. transcriptions of our vast collections. So we are, but you know, we can't do all of that. So we have created an AI working group. The role of that working group is to look at all of these things um, and make recommendations. But the very first thing that we are doing in that uh, working group is to learn, learn about AI make sure we are all on the same page uh, about what AI is. Because in the library we have staff who come from, you know, branches and research and technology. How do we all speak the same language when we talk about AI? So that's the first thing we're doing, like get our AI 101 and speak the same language, then do some investigation in terms of, you know, what is the staff facing tool we should try? a public facing tool that we should try and then um, educate the rest of the library, our stakeholders, um, and then make recommendations on what the right things for us to do are and then uh, build on that, work on that, implement AI. Um, I think it's important that we pay attention to how AI is given, we use it in an ethical and responsible way as an organization with our mission and values and there's just with the fast and after enough chat gpt it's sort of become this thing everybody wants to get on the AI bandwagon. things which are not even ai are called ai <laughs> just because it's it's the new buzzword um, so i think it's important to take a moment and sort of truly see is this a problem that we need to solve with ai or is this a regular digital problem that doesn't need uh, an AI solution? I mean, if you have to go pick up milk from your corner store, do you really need to buy a Ferrari to go there, or can you just walk there and you know, like, what, what's the right solution? Is that, you know, just asking those questions ourselves and sort of tackling the diagram is what we are doing at the moment.
2: Yeah, I, um, I really appreciate both of these answers. You you both really identified some of the, the best possible outcomes. Um, so I, I love to sweep in like Maleficent at the end and, and give you the, the problems. But um but please understand I, I endorse all of yep. that that good stuff too. Um I've I think when it comes to curationist, you know, um I think seemingly our mission is access to cultural heritage through digital spaces. And so in that context, it's very easy to say, oh yeah, AI, great. More access, more searchable, more findable equals more access. Um and that doesn't even get into my problems with the loss of like Boolean search knowledge. Um, but but I think just saying your your mission is access, so AI is good, is so um, under undercooked of an idea. Um, because yeah, broadly our mission is access, but we also more specifically want compassionate, ethically minded uh, sovereignty for indigenous knowledge. Um, in that access and so in that framework we've really had to go very slowly with AI um, in terms of thinking about does it fit our mission because I, this sort of um, rampant like all access full distribution anyone can download at any time idea that that AI unchecked would give our collection certainly um, is in direct contradiction to a lot of indigenous best thinking around their cultural heritage. Not everything is for everyone, um, and I think latent in AI as a model is this idea of infinite access, infinite scale, infinite growth, and a lot of the 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 ugly things about capitalism more broadly. Right? Just as we try to accumulate wealth, we also try to accumulate knowledge, um, and so. In that sense, AI can be deeply antithetical to our mission, and it takes a really thoughtful understanding of who is it that we're trying to serve. Are we trying to serve an audience that that just craves infinite access and infinite surveillance on all human-created cultural heritage, or are we trying to serve an audience of people who have already deeply thought through the use and value and dissemination of objects they create, and simply elevate that perspective? which still, in my mind, belongs under access, but it's, it's a very different frame of access. So considering AI has really called our, our organization to really reconsider our mission in, in many ways. And that, I think, has been the real advantage of doing this work so far.
1: Great. Thank you. And that, that kind of gets started to my next point here, um, one of the final questions about um, threats and risks and challenges for artificial intelligence and AI for, for cultural heritage institutions we talked about. Never thought about it in that light. Or about traditional knowledge, and what unfettered access to all of that content means. Because um, you know, I deal with Connecticut institutions, right? And when you think of Connecticut, you think of old white people, and that's who we deal with. Um, but there's more. There's more to it than that, and, and we work with those groups, and, and we're trying to be more sensitive to, to what they, what they desire for their collections and for their institutions. So I just want to hear from from the other two people here. Like, what what other what other risks or threats do you foresee, or have you encountered, or Challenges like we said, like one of the things that I think about is that AI needs to be perfect, right? That's because it's a machine; it needs to be perfect all the time. I worked on a project for handwriting text recognition, um, building a neural network for that, and it got up to ninety-five percent, and it wasn't good enough. But if you talk to a transcriber, it was really difficult. They're doing about the same, right? Um, so that's one of the one of the challenges there is kind of understanding. You know, we expect them to be perfect, and they might not be. And is that okay, right? Um, so I don't know, Garita, um, if you have any other threats or challenges that you've come across. Like you said, the, the public facing might not be ready yet. Um, so you want to elaborate a little bit?
3: Sure. Um, absolutely. Um, besides the basic bias and racism <laughs> inherent in, in the algorithms, I think it's important to think about um, the cost of AI. Um, you know, there's so many opportunities, but it's not cheap to to implement AI. Um, so for cultural heritage institutions, cost is always something that think about how can we do the best in what we have. Uh, so it's, 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 from that point of view, it's important to invest in the upskilling of stuff um, in making sure they have the right skillset, A, to interact with AI, or and B, to build AI or you know prompt AI, use it in Best possible way to help our patients um, with generative AI. One of the challenges I feel is the vault gardens it creates. Um, once you're sort of locked into that walled garden, it's very hard to move to a different product. Uh, and there's a lack of sort of data interoperability between these tools, so you cannot lock in. So there is there is that part of uh, of how just the power structures of this will change based on how how uh, things evolve. Um, then as I also mentioned there's there's like uh, the deepening of the digital device, that's always possible. Um, and Again, yeah, you know, the shifting of the power structures. So, I mean, when um, social media was first introduced, the promise of connecting people, and bringing people together was was the big dream, but what it really ended up doing was alienating people a little bit, polarizing people, trolling and you know, bullying, and not really bringing people together. So, you know, what are the harms that AI might bring that we can't foresee today, but we, in the future, so taking the time to sort of learn about that uh, and and educate ourselves. Um, And one more thing I'd like to sort of say is that, you know, this generative AI, the the frenzy of, you know, everything needs to do AI. It's not the first big technology, it won't be the last. It's only a matter of time before quantum computing comes into play and takes AI to a whole new level. Then what? So, I I believe as cultural uh, heritage institutions, we have to have our pulse, uh, our finger on the pulse, and see what's going on. Make sure we are, uh, you know, advocating for the right things. We are uh, um, talking about having these conversations and uh, just being responsible. So, having the having digital mindset and being lifelong learners of technology and see how that affects our work and just you know,
4: do the best that we can. Yeah, I love that. I think that's totally true. And I also agree that the biggest risk right now is that um, we pay for big, costly systems and they don't work. And I think that that is actually the biggest risk. But um, I mean, there are other deeper, big, you know, sort of more existential risks, but that's like the most immediate one. Um, uh, so, I think just for that, but uh, you know, a slow down is a, I think that's the biggest thing we have to do now is just sort of wait or, or, if, or experiment. So, you know, learn about these technologies while, um, you know, while trying them out. So, you, you get that um, experience, the staff gets the experience, you, you get to know more about your data, what these models are actually capable of, what, you know, um, how you have to, re- you know, what the review process will be like, and um, uh, so I think that just sort of um, taking a breath because I think the marketplace now with AI it is very crazy, and there's lots of unverified claims, and it's um, there's no regulation, so it, and there's no baseline either, so we don't have any sort of evidence that that you know that any of these claims are um, that are going to work. It's like oh, it's going to be so much better next year. But we haven't even seen it work this year for what we need, you know. So um, I think, you know, taking a breath and, and um, understanding, like all sort of acquisition of IT services, you, I work in the federal government. And there's a long process to do that, and sort of re- relying on those privacy and security, you know, sort of terms that are in there that these systems don't meet yet. So like that's a blocker too. Um, uh, so I think there is, you know, practical reasons to wait to, before, you know, sort of anything is, is, uh, is implemented at a large scale. Um, but I think another risk, thinking as a library, you know, archives person, you know, it, further down the road when, you know, the, these generative AI, AI tools make the cost of, you know, creating things very cheap. so that like we saw with internet there's just going to be explosion of content that we will have to acquire, steward, set, you know, learn even more about so the sort of job gets even bigger and more complex when there's, um, you know, the process of creating this content, it becomes easier and faster and and how are we going to, you know, how are we going to select for our collections, how are we going to manage these things, how, how are we going to determine authorship, that's going to be really complicated. And it's not, um, uh, so those are all other things beyond just the practical implementation um, right now that I feel like we have to look at in addition to what the panel says, which I totally agree with.
1: One of the things I was thinking about last night before this was um, how AI could help in digital preservation. And it's kind of like going yeah. in circles. You're making <laughs> right. AI things, and AI comes in and helps you preserve it, and just yeah. keeps going and going. but. I think that you know, working in background digital preservation, everyone mm-hmm. is scared of born digital with where I work, including mm-hmm. the bigger state institutions. And I'm wondering if that there's an opportunity there. I don't know what it would look like uh, for that selection, for kind of like, yeah. you know. Well, even
4: getting PII out of born digital archives, right. web archives, it's yeah. just, you um,
1: uh, can't do it without There's like a million tools. dollar grant yeah. in Connecticut to figure yeah. that out, yeah. 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 Um, great, so we have about 10 minutes left. And, we do have some time for Q and A. I don't know if you want to run a microphone or um, yes, uh, in the uh, over here. Yeah,
5: thanks. Um, thanks so much for this. Um, my question is mostly for Gravita and Abby. Um, and something that you had brought up is you know libraries and also for Mike, libraries, cultural institutions are highly dependent on vended solutions. In particular, I think they're of the top fifteen. Uh, service providers for libraries, like two are nonprofit, almost none open source, and one is OCLC, so there we go. But the, my question is like, if you, as, as institutions that are so, in many ways, dependent on bended solutions, like um, larger institutions might be able to make LLMs or um, neural networks, but often the resources don't exist for smaller institutions to, to do that and as leaders in the field. I'm wondering, you know, what is the role of large institutions like NYPL and um, Library of Congress to make um, and support solutions that are uh, useful for, for all sorts of, of institutions, large or small? And also, even within these large institutions, what. What are you thinking about when it comes to vended solutions, so that you know there isn't like almost like a, a race to get into this market, which is you know hundreds of millions of
1: dollars for libraries, you know, like we saw for example with eBooks.
5: Mm-hmm. Thanks.
1: I'll just talk like for one second because I'm in a weird, I'm in a different position. I'm a funder. Mm-hmm. I work at a funder, and I work with a lot of people who work in technology, and I see our role like we fund great projects, and I think that. Humanities Councils, funders, nonprofits should be funding this work so it is open mm-hmm. to bring it to these smaller places. We want to build in Connecticut, we want to build infrastructure that's available to everyone and get people where they need to go through workflows and that kind of stuff. And I think there's a layer of AI there so that people can get the benefits but still do the work they need to get done. So that's just my mm-hmm. view on it being kind of adjacent to libraries and archives, but having some funding power. Um, I'm trying to push our organization to fund more technology projects. but We're all about public humanities, so I'm trying to Mm -hmm. finagle that right now. Go ahead. Uh,
3: So I'll address the vendors first. So I think the thing we are sort of grappling with right now is how do we even assess these vendors? Are they truly using AI? If they are, what are the implications for PII? What does that mean for our data? Mm -hmm. Um, So right now we are the very first thing we're trying to do is to come up with a rubric to just assess vendors and sort of say, okay, this is a vendor we are okay working with, but this is, this isn't. So um, that's one part of being, being clear on how the rubric kind of matches our value system and what we are okay with and what we're not okay with and drawing that very clear line and then making sure everybody at the library sort of is using uh, the same tools and speaking the same language. Um, In terms of, creating LLMs um, or, you know, providing them as open source. That's something we in at NYBL, we do a lot of open source work. So that's definitely something we would do in the future. But again, we are sort of at this point sort of thinking about what is the first thing to track, tackle here? What is the first LLM that we train? What's the problem that we address? What's the most important thing for us to do? And then sort of. Find the metrics of success. Is this accurate enough, uh, or can this be solved with a, with a different approach? Does it mm-hmm. need to be AI and so uh, do that measurement? Um, so we are we are taking it a little bit slow. We you know just a little bit risk averse in that sense. So taking the time to make for making sure that we are doing the right things and. Uh, addressing the right they're not rushing into it because once uh, you build a thing you can kind of have to support it for the rest of it life it's it's life and that that can be costly that can be uh, you know, resource intensive so mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. yeah the, um I think I think um i at the Library of Congress before I started on this team we were my um, part of this NDIP team national digital information, information. It, was, it was a a big uh, digital preservation program where government gave us um, uh, money and i think this um to and to uh, build a partnership network to develop tools and standards and services around digital preservation and i think this need, we need a similar type of thing from a um i don't know if NSF or this this one came from Congress, but I think we need a similar thing, so that we can um, facilitate partnerships with um, research universities and computer science departments, so we can d- develop um, our uh, uh, or develop tools and just learn about the um, how the tools work. Out of that digital preservation um, uh, program, the, this thing called FADGI came out of it, the Federal Agency Digitization Guidelines Initiative. Very bad acronyms, but um, they. Uh, they uh, but it, it, it was um, different federal agencies and then different universities who came together and 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 clearly defined digitization standards that they could all give to vendors because um, we don't have. It. And that's what I would love also to see for AI, where we have like, oh, okay, we're going to use large language models for a public facing chatbot. What are, you know, these are our baseline quality metrics, and and maybe you know, and we can define like. Very high quality quality metrics for tasks that are very mission critical, that are very that you know touch you know certain types of users, and then but then we can also define quality for internal processes that maybe aren't as you know sort of sensitive, um, and, and and sort of move forward that way because I think if if we have sort of united voice on, on standards and quality, then then um, then we can you know, sort of get the vendors to work with us in, in a better way.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. I think we have, we have time for one more question. We have four minutes. Thank you all for your comments. Um, I think, as you all know, there's a huge space race for data right now for AI model training. Uh, what you're working on, um, you know, in the case of Creationist or the Library of Congress, you know, in, in creating better meta- metadata and, uh, you know, curating these large lists of open access initiatives content could be construed as extremely valuable for commercial entities that want to train. And maybe some of these commercial entities are actually you know, well-meaning. They don't want to repeat the mistakes of Stability AI and the Lion data set. Uh, but I think there's also a lot of misconceptions around what exactly open access means. So how are you thinking about commercial entities that might want to train on your data sets and your
2: metadata? Um, I, don't, I think that's already
4: happened. Um. The like anything that's open, I think it's already been used. Um, the but I think that there are models for um doing it in a sort of uh where mo- the most people can learn. It, and um, the Nordic National Library has all got together and um created like a training set for Nordic newspaper, Nordic historic newspapers, um, it, to, to train models that they can use on their content. Um, the National Library of Norway is. Um, digitize their entire collections. They have a lot of oil money, and that's what they spend it on. Um, But they, uh, so they have a lot of scale issues and have been leading the way in sort of um, uh, experimenting and and sort of trying to figure out how to use AI for, you know, on on their big, giant collections. But um, I think, I mean, I think it's it's difficult because we, um, I think it could set up a, I, even in digitization, you saw you know sort of collections that are um, produced, and then vendors get their hands on them and then they're like applied with lots of metadata and then they sell them right back to libraries. And I can definitely see something like that happening again. <laughs> um, the, uh, but I, I think it's hard to unless there's like a, a license sort of um, created that stipul- stipulates how, how training data can be used. Um, in federal contracting, there's um, there's government provided government provided data um, and government government furnished property, and you're not allowed to use, reuse that for other contracts. And it's sort of making that clear for um, if there's ever uh, you know uh, if we work with vendors to create training data, sort of trying to make that clear um, where they can't use it for enhancing their other their products. Um, but I think it's you know, it's, it's still, I think if your data's out there, it's been used already, so.
2: Yeah, I agree completely. Um, curationist doesn't own any of the mm-hmm. items in our database. It's frankly none of my business mm-hmm. if people have been, been using this to, to train AI models to do whatever they want. Um, I will say the difference um, would be that certainly someone could come in and just scrape the Curationist site and pull down all of the you know all of the object records that we're sourcing from these institutions, and possibly even pull down all of the metadata that we've contributed directly to these listings. Um, but what they can't train for is the curationist perspective on knowledge parity and data sovereignty. Um, and that's a perspective that will deeply affect whatever AI model, we come up with internally, um, just as it has affected all of the metadata and uh, art writing that we've generated already. Um, and frankly, that's the most interesting part, I think, is the, the care with which we apply this data. Um, and that's something that you can't just rip from the internet. That's really something that only comes from thoughtful, dedicated practice um, and dedication to a standard of care in cultural heritage.
1: Great. Thank you everybody. Um, really appreciate the conversation and looking forward to the other panels today. So really appreciate it, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah,
0: the Engelberg Center Live Podcast is a production of the Engelberg Center on Innovation, Law and Policy at NYU Law and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Our theme music is by Jessica Batke and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license.